Well, did everybody look in the mirror this morning? You look good. I assume that you did by how you all look. Did you like what you saw? How did you look on the inside? Did you, could the mirror show you that? I was uh, looking this week and found that a Dr. Maxwell Maltz years ago wrote, wrote a best-selling book called The New Faces or New Faces, New Future. The idea was around the fact that people had gotten into car accidents, they had been in bad fires, they had been born with some deformation of their face or something, and as a result of that, out of their outward appearance, they suffered inwardly. They were insecure. They weren't very social. They just kind of stayed in their own little cocoon. But this Dr. Maltz was a plastic surgeon, and so he would study these individuals. He'd figure out ways to create an ear or to raise this or adjust that and make them look a whole lot better, sometimes really good. Couldn't even notice there'd ever been an issue. And the book is about what resulted in their personality as a result of their outward appearance. You can imagine what happened, can't you? They became more confident, more self-assured. They were, were more comfortable in social situations, in social settings. Except, oddly enough, some people that went through this whole entire process came out the other side and were convinced, I'm no different. I'm exactly the same. I'm still that ugly little girl. I still have that burned face. And the doctors say, no, 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 look at these before and after pictures. This is remarkable. And their friends and their family, they would compliment them. But certain ones, their personality would never make any kind of change. They continued to feel like that ugly duckling. And so in his book... He says this, it's absolutely amazing the way self-image influences our actions and attitudes and especially our relationships with other people. Secular physician, but that is his take. I can recall a young man who growing up, the favorite thing that he could do that his mother loved was to hear him sing. Oh, Robert, you, can, you just have the best voice. I love it when you sing. Oh, will you sing some more? And so Robert would sing and she would praise him. And on and on and on this went until Robert grew up. And he decided he was going to form his own group, if you will, or a little choir. And they sang praise music. It was very nice, very appropriate, except for one simple problem. Robert couldn't sing. He invested huge amounts of money into the equipment and to be portable and all these other things, and nobody had the heart to tell him that he really wasn't as good as he had built up in his mind that he was. Somehow, what his mother had told him had stuck. And life can do that with all of us, can't it? Throughout life, we are told things... And quite often, they stick. You know, research tells us we have to be complimented seven times, the average person, before we hear it. Did you know that? But you only have to be criticized 
one time, and it sticks. Parents, how are you parenting? With praise or with criticism? So what things have you been told? What has stuck? If you're like most people, the things that have stuck haven't necessarily been good things. Maybe you're told you're no good. You're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. You're lazy. You're dumb. You're ugly. You're just a nerd. You'll always be a nerd. How does one process that? As an adult, much less as a child. And just because somebody says it, does that make it true? Well, as a child, it kind of does. And so there are people, I believe, carrying that baggage throughout life. I'm no good. I'm annoying. I'm worthless. And the list goes on. And everything that has ever been said has stuck. So this morning, I want to ask a very simple question. Who determines self-worth? Who determines self-worth? Is it everybody else and their perception of what you are and who you are? <clears throat> Is your perception warped? Here's a picture of me. I happen to be in Peru in this picture. Is that an accurate depiction of who I am? Be careful. <laughs> or is it warped? How about some others? <laughs> that one's pretty close. My eyes, though, it's the hardest time finding glasses. Nobody understands. You know, my forehead's kind of big. There was a time when my forehead was just, it was, and my, my smile was crooked. Oh. Sometimes, have you ever been told you have a tiny face? I have a tiny face. I'm too eager. <laughs> Just a go-getter. But those teeth, though. <laughs> those teeth can be a problem. I'm asking you, what's your perception of yourself? How do you view yourself, and who determines that? <clears throat> I thought it was stuck. I was going to say, hello. <clears throat> <laughs> Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. It's a rather true statement. What do you think about yourself in your heart. Science confirms this very verse, and Ellen White says things that are quite similar. By beholding, we become changed. You've heard that so many times before. So, who determines your self-worth? What are you beholding? When you see yourself, when you view yourself, when you think thoughts about yourself, who determines your self-worth? Now, self-esteem is a confidence and satisfaction in oneself. 
And if we want to nitpick a little bit, I like the idea of self-worth a little better. It's the sense of one's own value or worth as a person, but that still doesn't get it all quite right. Because as we're going to see today, our sense of worth and value really needs to come from where? From everybody else complimenting me? Telling me I'm doing a good job? Telling me I'm right on course, that I'm smart, that I'm funny, that I'm attractive? And all these things combined, that helps me feel good about who I am. Is that how I should determine my self-worth? Or is it based on something much bigger than that? The value that somebody else places on me. I'm going to look at a passage. Well, let's look at this first, I guess. Low self-worth paralyzes God's dream and plan for you. Do you believe that? Does God have a plan for you? Does he have a dream for you? But if you constantly are thinking belittling thoughts about yourself, is that going to impact that? If you brought your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. And we're going to look at a few verses there in Numbers chapter 13. It's a story you're quite familiar with. The children of Israel have been on quite a journey. They're right at the edge of the promised land. They are so excited. And so in chapter 13 of Numbers, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan. And he gives them directions on to choose somebody from each tribe. And so they're all called together. They're sent out. Moses says, Be of good courage. And it tells us in verse 25, After 40 days of being in this land, going to the north and to the south, the east and the west and the mountains and, and seeing what grows there. And on and on and on, they come back with a report. Do you think people are excited to hear the report? Yes. This is their dream land. So verse 26, now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They're all there. And they start to tell us in verse 27, and they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified. Verse 30, Caleb Pipes up and he says, he quiets the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. Now stop and think for a minute. Group of 12, caravanning together, all seeing the same thing. 10 have the report that this isn't looking good. I mean, it looks good, but it doesn't look good. Caleb saw the same stuff. Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But then verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they, have, <clears throat> they, gave, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. 
and there we saw the giants, and we were like, what does it say? Grasshoppers in our own sight. We were like grasshoppers. We looked and we saw, and you know what? There's no way. God had a plan to give us this promised land. It's everything we dreamed and hoped for, but there's just no way. We're like grasshoppers. We're just these tiny little bugs compared to these people. We're like ropes on the Goodyear blimp. And the view of themselves is so evident in this verse, isn't it? And I'm not sure that we are so terribly different. God says in Jeremiah chapter 29, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Think about that. God has a plan. God has dreams for your life. But too often we become paralyzed because we buy into the devil's lie that I'm just merely a grasshopper. There's no way. But look at Caleb and Joshua. Their observations were the same, but their perceptions were very different. And their conclusions, again, were completely opposite. Go back to Numbers, this time in chapter 14, verse 7 through 9. In fact, I think we have those here on the screen. The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. Do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. One sees the giants and feels like they're grasshoppers. Another sees the giants and said, they're bread. Let's go take it. God was ready. His plan was laid out. But the people were not ready because of their poor self-worth. Low self-worth paralyzes God's dream and plan for you. What do you think? Is that possible? Low self-worth also paralyzes our witness. Look at this text here. It's the parable of the talents. You know this text very very well. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. But I want to focus on he who he gave the one talent. What did he do? He received one, went and dug in the ground, and hid his Lord's money. The last man literally did nothing. He could have at least collected interest, but he does nothing. Why? I want to suggest that this last man was immobilized by fear because of his low self-worth. His witness was paralyzed. I can't do anything right. I don't know anything about money. I'm afraid I'm going to mess it all up. 
I think I'll just bury it. I wonder how many of God's plans, we just, we bury them. Because I have this grasshopper syndrome. I believe the promise is for you. I'm just not so sure it's for me. Because of our low opinion of ourselves, because someone could do a better job, because of our doubts and our fears, because of our feelings of inferiority and inadequacy, because we have bought the devil's lie that we're just grasshoppers. And so we've been given this precious message, the three angels' message. But we don't give it for fear that we'll present it wrong. So we don't do anything at all. We just, we just bury it. So we do nothing. We're paralyzed with fear. And as a result, I wonder if our church is wandering through the wilderness today. Because honestly, what could he do through me? I'm just a grasshopper. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Like many things, there's a ditch on both sides of the road, right? I realize there's a ditch on the side of the road called pride. And we preach about that a fair bit. I realize that my heart is deceitfully wicked and I can't trust it. I realize I'm a sinner in need of a savior, amen? Amen. But I also know some of these verses, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, towards me, in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. How about this one? 1 John 3, 1, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Does that give us value? Does that give us worth to be a child of the king? Do we need to be walking around with our head down and constantly making apologies for our our terrible way we do everything? No, we're a child of the king. He's the one that gives us value. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. For some of us, we, we have a real easy time with a God that says, don't be prideful. You know, I did a, I did a fair job, Lord. I, I think you really used me today. Oh, no, 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 you getting prideful? I have a much harder time. Maybe it's just me. I have a much harder time allowing myself to think that the Lord rejoices over me. What's there to rejoice in? Well, he loves me. I'm a child of the king. How about this one, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. Whose grace? God's grace. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The value and worth is not in me, it's in who he is. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory. Are we simply white trash? 
Did Jesus come to this earth to die for junk? Does he make mistakes? Or do I have value because he loves me? Because he rejoices over me? Because he died for me? And in this verse, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. This is what they needed back in, in the camp in Israel, didn't they? I can do all things through who? Through Christ. Yet we don't allow ourselves to read that verse for me. We read it for everybody else. You can do all things through Christ. Go get them. But for me, I can't do anything. I'm worthless. For some reason, that's stuck. I'm no good. I'm not going to amount to anything. I don't have any abilities. I don't have any gifts. Forget it. For me, even with God, it doesn't matter. He, what are we actually saying about God? He's too weak to do anything for me. See who we're really insulting when we put ourselves down? It's not just the creature. It's the creator. Yes, alone I'm a grasshopper. That's true. But in Christ, all the challenges, they're loaves of bread. And I know what to do with a hot loaf of bread. How about you? <laughs> and you might think, well, this is kind of a silly topic for church. I mean, it's all about me. No, it's not about me. You're missing it. It's about him. And the time will come when self-esteem, everything that's built us up in our self-esteem in terms of what everybody else is telling me, Oh, you're a hard worker. You're a good businessman. You're very strategic in your thinking. You're very attractive. You're very smart. You're all, and all these things are building me up. When all of that gets stripped away, and the time will come when it will, where will your self-worth lie? When you have a target on your back, when everybody is shaming you and belittling you, is it, are you going to be able to stand up and say, no, I know I'm a child of the king. I know who created me, who formed me, who fashioned me, who rejoices over me with songs and with singing. I know who died for me, and he doesn't die for junk. This is important. This isn't just some, you know, self-help, build yourself up, pat yourself on the back kind of a thing. This is about God. In Christ, I'm a new creation. I'm a child of the king. Self, low self-worth paralyzes God's dream and plan for you. Low self-worth paralyzes our witness. And low self-worth paralyzes our relationships. Studies have shown that if you want to be happily married... You first have to be what? Happily single. Some of you have heard it. What does that mean? Well, if we are constantly considering ourselves to be inferior and worthless, then automatically, as default, I discredit everything somebody says. They weren't listening. 
they don't know what they're talking about. They're just trying to flatter me. They're brown nosing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually wasn't me anyway. It was this other guy. And from a spiritual standpoint, when one becomes critical of the designer, it doesn't take long. Sorry, if you're critical of the design, it doesn't take long before you're critical of the designer. Right? Another verse. Matthew 22. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the heart of the law. Love God. Love your neighbor. And how do you love your neighbor? Love yourself? We don't, we, we don't want to say that, do we? But I submit that we can't love our neighbor if we don't first love ourselves. Is that heresy? Could be, depending on how you interpret that. But it's not loving me in terms of my humanness and my wrongful tendencies, but who I am in Jesus Christ. And there's a huge difference. Sadly, too many of us read this text this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor and hate yourself. Nobody raise your hand, but many people interpret that verse that way. Love your neighbor. They're better. And hate yourself. But when you hate yourself, you devalue yourself and your creator. And actually, stop and think about it. When you're hating yourself, you become absorbed in and with yourself. You're always thinking about who? Yourself. How you didn't do this right or that right or the other thing right. And what you think perhaps is holiness and consecration is actually becoming an obsession with self. Have you met people like that? Who are the hardest people to get along with? People that are obsessed with themselves. Whether it's in a prideful way or a degrading way. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. And both have the same thing in common. They're obsessed with self. Romans 12, verse 3. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. What does that mean to consider yourself with sober judgment? It means middle of the road, doesn't it? By God's grace, I don't want to be prideful, but I also don't want to hate self and him in the process. So I want to have a self-worth based on who Christ says that I am. Not what everybody else says. David Siemens writes this, low self-worth wrecks interpersonal relationships more than anything else I know. If you have low self-worth, you ask another human being to do for you what no other person can do to make you feel adequate and able when you're already convinced that you are inadequate and unable, 
That's too heavy a demand on a husband, a wife, on children, friends, neighbors, or a church. It's too much. And the only place you're going to find a healthy self-worth is not going to be in any accomplishments or any accolades. Some of you know you've gotten accolades, and at the top you found it's empty, it's meaningless. That's what Solomon found out, right? But those that have a strong self-worth in who they are in Jesus Christ, accolades don't matter. They don't make them prideful. And when they're criticized, it doesn't make them hate life and be bitter because they're not worried with self, but only Christ being uplifted. So what's the answer? Your self-work is in God. That's the answer. What right do you have to belittle or despise someone whom God loves so deeply. For God so loved you, put your name in there, that he gave his only begotten son. It was love for you that did that, not just the person sitting next to you. What right Have you to belittle or despise someone who God has honored so much? See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Folks, that's a huge honor. It's also a huge responsibility. What right have you to belittle or despise someone whom God values so highly? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are there many things in your home you would die for? That wouldn't make any sense. But Jesus looked at you and said, I'll die for for him, I'll die for her. And it wasn't a pronoun, it was a name. What right have you to belittle or despise someone whom God provided for so fully? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's provided everything for you, hasn't he? Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply some of your needs, all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. What right have you to belittle or despise someone whom God has planned for so carefully? We already talked about Jeremiah chapter 29, but look at some of these in Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Where is it? In Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. What right have you to belittle or despise someone whom God delights? Ephesians 1 6, he made us accepted in the beloved. 
In other words, we are accepted in who? In Jesus Christ. Therefore, when we read this verse, this is my beloved. If you are in Christ, you are his beloved. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If we're in Christ, God looks at us and sees Christ, and he delights in us. So this morning, the question is simple. Where do you get your idea of yourself? From past hurts? False ideas? What other people have programmed into you? Or do you need to say, no, I'll not listen to those lies from the past any longer. I'll not listen to Satan, the liar, the confuser, the blinder, who twists and distorts. I'm going to listen to God's opinion of me and let him reprogram me into his loving estimate of me. Because I don't want my low self-worth to paralyze God's dreams for me, to paralyze my witness for him, to paralyze my relationships, most importantly with him. No, rather, I want to be transformed, as it says in Romans 12 too, by the renewing of my mind. And how will I find balance between prideful thinking and belittling thoughts? not rocket science. By beholding, we become changed. Through close study and earnest contemplation of the character of Christ, his image is reflected in our own lives. His perfect image. I don't know about you, but I want to be like Jesus. Jesus didn't put himself down nor did he ever puff himself up. He didn't receive applause of men, nor was he overwhelmed by the insults of people. His only directive was to do the will of his father. His value, his worth, his witness, his mission, his provision, his security, his life was totally and completely in the Father. And this morning, he bids us, abide in me and I in you. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, Creator, God, and friend, it is you who before we were born, you knew us, you fashioned us, you formed us, you knit us together in your mother's womb, and you don't make mistakes. Lord, we're the first to admit that we are sinners this morning. And we ask again for your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace to cover us. We ask that you will fulfill your promises as well in us. That we may not only be justified but sanctified to be washed, to be transformed in your likeness and your character. As we focus on, behold, and abide in you.
to find our self-worth not in the opinions of others, but in your opinion alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.